So yeah, so we're, we're in this series in the eight practices, and this is the sixth one. And these eight practices are how we move towards spiritual maturity. They are collected from the past 2,000 years of people trying to work out how to follow along uh, the path of Christ. And so we started with our first practice of choosing presence in a world of constant distraction. How do we cultivate presence? How do we choose presence? And then to seek health in a world full of burnout and overwork, how do we seek health and care for ourselves so that we can then connect that with other people and to God? And to cultivate spiritual reality, uh, <laughs> cultivate spirituality. So instead of relying on just easy believisms and mantras, how to, do we cultivate our spirituality and grow it so that we can connect to God and live a life of faithfulness? To embrace diversity. So instead of worshiping sometimes just the sameness of thought or theology, uh, but instead to embrace all of the diversities that exist within our ethnicities, our race, our genders, all of those things, and to see how God uh, works and meets us in those areas. To engage culture, uh, to realize that culture is the water we swim in. It's everywhere. That's what we talked about last week. And that how we engage culture, both passively and intentionally and directly, really matters about how we express our faith, how we see ourselves in our life of faith. And that leads us to the practice of creating beauty. There are, uh, there, there's a direct line between engaging culture and creating beauty because the things that we make to exist in, that we connect meaning to oftentimes have to do with how we see what's beautiful, how we name what is beautiful, and how we share those definitions of who and what and what ideas are beautiful. And for me, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my different definitions of beauty over the years and what was important to me about that. I realized as I traced my story that beauty was always important to me, but it looked different through different stages in my life. And I was thinking about when I was, uh, when I was in elementary school and I was drawing all the time. And uh, I would sit for hours looking at a comic book illustration of Spider-Man and trying to get it just right, just right, just, just like that artist. There's still pictures in my mind, single comic book page spreads that can pop up just by going there in my memories. And it was always important to me to figure out how to communicate through visual things. And for me, that's, that's what was beautiful, to add that like third bicep muscle of, of Spider-Man, because you know the comic book characters, they have like muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles, right? Um, and my daughter's illustration, she loves to draw, but her, her drawings, oddly, don't, they don't have muscles on top of muscles on them. They, uh, but we, we all have this need to try to create something that we feel that we think is, is beautiful. It could be when you cook. 
It could be in how you parent. It could be how you decorate your home, uh, the types of recipes that you follow, in the way you craft an email, in the way you put your makeup on or you do your hair or your clothes. It could be even in your body language. You ever realize that somebody that you know, just the way that they like talk and communicate with their body is like a work of art. They're like a ballerina in regular life. Uh, even the way people, you ever notice some people, the attention that they pay to reading aloud, if they were asked to read aloud, that they see that almost as a form of art. Of course, there's songs and paintings and script writing and, and novel writing, um, but, our, but beauty and our attempts to make things beautiful are everywhere, aren't they? Wouldn't you say? Look at all these beautiful people in this room. Y'all didn't just wake up that way, did you? You worked on it a little bit. You tried to make yourself, well, some of you just woke up, woke up and rolled in, but most of you worked on it. Yeah, Josh is like, beauty comes in an eight ounce cup of caffeinated beverage. Yeah, that's where my beauty comes from. Uh, all, all that to say, um, some of the ways that, that I was exposed to serious spirituality and Christianity didn't seem to have much to do with beauty. I don't know if anybody else shared that. I mean, when I think about my, my spiritual education uh, growing up there, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on beauty necessarily. And I also, a lot of us grew up in a time period where a lot of churches moved out of church buildings and into like old shopping centers and like, warehouses and stuff. And that kind of became like the kind of cool thing. But when I look back at all that gray concrete, it's like that was the opposite of, of beauty or any sort of aesthetical thing. And, and a preacher might be talking to me about how beautiful God is, but I'm looking around and I'm like, well, why, why, aren't, you, why aren't we trying to be like God then and create beauty ourselves? Why are we in this sort of situation? We might hear about the beauty of God, but where, where does that play out in our lives? Because here's the thing, all of us can touch a point in our lives where we're focused on creating beauty. And it's because we need beauty. It's because we crave beautiful things. We want to see them, we wanna make them, we wanna interact with beauty. And beauty can cause us to aspire to rise to greater heights in our faith, in our relationships. When we see something beautiful, it can inspire us and encourage us. And over, over the years, philosophers, theologians, uh, Christian and otherwise, have also come to see both truth and beauty as inseparable from one another. That there's really, if there's something is really, really true, that it will also ultimately be really, really beautiful. And that if something is incredibly beautiful, it will also speak to some truth that is essential for us as human beings. It's, this is a, not a great uh, metaphor, but it's kind of like, trying, imagining trying to see a beautiful sunset with broken glasses, that the broken glasses are like 
the missing truth aspect. There's no truth. So you're looking to see this beautiful thing, but you don't have access to the truth piece of it, and it distorts the way that you see the beauty of the sunset. And I'm not just, you know, saying that these things have to be found in these other places. I mean, Paul uh, puts this together in Philippians 4, where he's encouraging the readers of this letter, this letter to the Philippians. And he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, and then whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, and that's interesting, think about that. Think about that. Why? Because it will inspire you. It will inspire you to the heights that God intended you to have in your life and in your world, to think about truth and beauty and to realize that it's not just okay, but it's natural for truth and beauty to come together. Why else might beauty be important? Because beauty points to something beyond itself, usually. So uh, I read this book many, many years ago by this woman named uh, Elaine Scarry. Yeah, so it's an unfortunate last name for her. Um, maybe that's why she, part of why she ended up writing this book. Maybe it's because what she got called in elementary school because of her last name, I don't know. But she wrote this book called On Beauty and Being Just. And so for her, she was making these observations that beauty and justice tended to go together in stories and in the human experience. And I uh, just want to share a little bit of a quote about how she describes beauty as pointing to something beyond itself. She said, something beautiful fills the mind yet invites the search for something beyond itself something larger or something of the same scale which it needs to be brought into relation. Beauty, according to its critics, causes us to gape and suspend all thought. Which means, within its proper context, beauty can lead us into a, a place of wonder. That's, that sounds familiar, that word. What's, what's that word have to do with? Our mission, that's right to worship in wonder that beauty, when we see something beautiful and we can stay present and we've got a sense of who we are engaging in this beauty, it can lead us to an experience beyond itself. It can lead us into the realm of transcendence, into the realm of worship. It can inspire us. Have you ever seen something beautiful and just felt like worshiping God before? I have. I've seen paintings. I've seen people. I've seen uh, Grand Canyons and things. Well, a, there's a Grand Canyon. Um, and, and it has caused me to worship in wonder about God. How could something so beautiful and amazing exist? And now this, uh, this idea... Is not, is not free from the things we're discussing in Lent. It's not free from how uh, sin can impact these things. 
Uh, because while beauty can give us access to the holy and the transcendent, it's not immune from our greed as human beings. So my friend Benny, who came to Underground, he has been talking a lot recently about how he sees uh, galleries and museums as like almost like a church, almost like a temple that you go in there, you're supposed to talk real quiet. You can't touch anything. There's a sense of reverence. There's, you know, images on the wall and on pedestals. And there's a sense that these things should be treated with the almost holy sacrosanct sort of care. But on the other side of it, it's usually extremely wealthy people who can own those works of art and take those and have those and hold those. And uh, it becomes a type of ownership. It becomes about trying to own all of this beauty so often. And believe me, I want people to buy my paintings, so don't hear me say that. I'm just saying that there is a sense in which beauty can be reduced when it becomes about something that I can have or I can take instead of something that can be shared. That was an amen moment I thought right there, but I'll just say. So related to this, this sense of, this shared sense of beauty, in Lent, we're, we're being reminded of our mortality, our frailty, our, our, our proneness to illness and to sickness and how dependent we are on so many things to sustain us. Lent reminds us of these things, but beauty can connect with this in a, in a very meaningful way. I mean, in 2 Corinthians, it says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so there is this when beauty is in its proper relationship, we can appreciate it not as something to, to hold and to own, but something to share, something that we know will pass, something that comes and goes, but that the thing it points us to, God, and eternity with God, is the thing that lasts. If we don't position beauty rightfully, and it becomes this self-centered thing to hoard, to collect, to not to share the experience of communally and together, uh, we lose our way. That's how important beauty is. When it no longer is something for us to share with the church, with the community, with the family, and it becomes something for us to hoard or hide or try to prolong our access to when it's fading. Like y'all, this, this hairline is not gonna last forever. And when it's time, I will, I will cut my hair off. I am not gonna hold on to that fading beauty, that grass that withers, that's gone by nightfall, right? That's what it feels like for, for us guys when, when we start seeing that hairline going, we're like, oh my gosh, that's, that's happening way faster than I, than I ever thought it would. I didn't think it would ever happen to me. <laughs> but this, this, uh, this problem happens when beauty becomes commodified. And this is, this is something that the scriptures are so concerned with. When beauty is, is objectified, when a person becomes less than a person in some way, God hates that. I don't say that a lot, but God hates it 
when we objectify another human being for the purposes of making some money, some profit, or helping us out in some way that's not uh, sustainable or important. Uh, Eugene Peterson says this about that. He says, we live in a culture that has replaced soul with self. Soul with self. Beauty points us to the soul. It reveals soul, greed, self. This reduction turns people into either problems or consumers. Insofar as we acquiesce in that replacement, we gradually but surely regress in our identity. For we end up thinking of ourselves and dealing with others in marketplace terms. Everyone we meet is either a potential recruit to join our enterprise or a potential consumer for what we are selling. We ourselves are the potential, or we ourselves are the potential recruits or consumers. Neither we nor our friends have any dignity just as we are, only in terms of how we or they can be used. This is what's at stake when we're talking about what do we do with beauty? Is it something we share that builds relationship or is it something that we own and hoard and how that impacts how we treat other people in our world? Now, to get to these scriptures that we read here and even something that, um, that Emily and Jenny were talking about is we must reckon with this and this concept of beauty has such power to create or destroy because it's, it's power given to us by me, being made like God. So in Genesis 1.31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. To me, one of the most startling concepts that comes into my mind when I, th when I grapple with the idea of atheism, that there could, could be no God. One of the, the ideas that just flood my mind that seems to show up at a thousand miles an hour right in my face is beauty. That, that this world was made with such an incredible amount of beauty and that I never stopped finding it. I keep finding it in more and more places and more and more people in more and more areas as I get older, as I learn to walk in the steps of Christ, I see beauty that to me, it just negates so much of the argument that this is all random or by mistake. And, and to further complicate it, you know, like, God makes everything and says, this is, this is very good. And then we come along and then we start to say, well, this right here is like a seven out of 10 of good. And this over here is like a nine and this over here. Isn't it interesting? As many people as there are, there's different ideas of beauty. And the, and the only difference, the thing itself or the person or the art or whatever it is doesn't change. It's just the person looking at it that's different. Beauty is such an incredibly subjective thing. And that just makes me think like, wow, how else could that even exist if we weren't made by this creative artist, God? There's another thing I want to point out in this verse. And it's something that probably just went right by and you 
maybe didn't even think about or notice. I know that's happened for me many times before, but there's a potential hidden in this verse because the scripture says, God says, this, what I made was good. It was very good. The word in Hebrew is tov. And it can mean uh, several things. It can mean good, pleasant, agreeable, appropriate, um, becoming welfare, benefit. But here's what it can't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. Perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. It means that inherent in God's creation was room to make something very, very good. That what God made could be altered, could be shaped. And that's exactly what God intended. Because in the other verse that we're reading about, God puts man in the garden and says, shape it, make it, do stuff with it, create. It's, it's, it's I gave you some great material to work with and I want you to keep going with it. It's not the idea of perfect. So the idea of perfect says it's frozen, it's all done. Even in the Greek, the word telos that we get, uh, it gets translated as perfect. It means like the end, the conclusion, everything's finalized, everything's done. But here in Genesis, we're not talking about the end of things. We're talking about the beginning. I think that's kind of cool that God said, hey, this is some good stuff. Now shape it, create with it, work with it, do some cool stuff here. I'm gonna put this guy, I'm gonna put these, this guy and this girl in this garden and see what they do with it. With, with my brain, with my ideas, what, what, what will they do? That's gonna be really cool to see. That was the first thing that God told people to do. Shape it, make it. So let's read that verse here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of us. The word work there is super interesting because it's the same word work that's also translated many times throughout the Hebrew scriptures as worship. Isn't that interesting? Work in this garden. It's the same as in, in Exodus, um, Moses is saying, hey, let my people go. Let them go out of slavery in Egypt so that they may go, they may worship me, worship God. And that word worship is the exact same word here that says work in the garden. So I'm, it's not, this isn't one-to-one, but I do think that it's really fascinating that work and worship and what God is asking Adam to do in this garden come from the same Hebrew thought, the same idea there, that when we're creating beauty, we could be, in fact, engaging in an act of worship. So uh, the other word there, uh, Shamar, uh, to attend to the garden, to work in it and to attend to it. That that word um, means attend to, to look after, to 
uh, to even guard. And um, I think when I see those two things together and I see the mandate of human beings, because you understand in this story, we're supposed to learn about ourselves, right? This, this story in the beginning, that we're learning about God and we're learning about what God wants us to do in this world. And so when we're hearing about Adam being put in the garden, it's not just like, oh, that's cool. That's like Adam's thing. He's like a gardener. That's his vocation and my vocation is this other thing. No, this is telling us something true about all of us, that all of us are put here in God's creation with an incredible and divine energy and impulse to shape it, to make it, to attend to it. And when we get really far away from that, we start to feel purposeless. We start to feel hopeless and disconnected. And we start to feel like maybe I'm just the sum of my parts. Maybe life is just utilitarian. Maybe all I need to do is sort of distract myself with entertainments after I'm done with my job and sort of just kind of eke out an existence. This could be what's at stake when we distance ourselves from shaping and attending to this creation that God has given us charge over. It's to, yeah, deal with environmental stuff. That's impending, really important. It's to deal with uh, issues of justice in other ways, but what for? Why, what are we protecting? What are we holding on to? It is this ability for us to make beautiful things, to shape those things in the likeness of the God that we were created in. And that we will be able to connect and find more purpose in our lives when we're doing that. And that's really attractive too. That's, that's not just gonna be attractive for you, it's gonna be attractive to others as well when we operate in that way. Uh, there's, a, there's a book, I'm still reading it right now, but this chapter just, uh, I was like, wow, this is really speaking to me. Um, what's it called? Uh, it's by Arthur Cole Riley. Um, what's that? Cole Arthur Riley. Oh, I wrote it down wrong. I was overconfident. That never happens to me. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the book, but this is what she says. To be a human who resembles the divine is to become responsible for the beautiful, for its observance, its protection, and its creation. It is a challenge to believe that this right is ours. To be a human who resembles the divine is to become responsible for the beautiful. That's what I want you to leave here, not feeling beat up about whatever, you know, sin you, you committed or those kind of things, but to know you're responsible for the beautiful. How, however that might look in your life, what beauty are you responsible for in your life? It takes intention. And, and I, I kind of want to end here with just this part from, from the Exodus story where um, there is a contrast between two things that are made. 
one thing out of haste, out of anxiety that is made is this golden calf where uh, Moses goes on to Mount Sinai to meet with God and he's not coming back. And the people are like, hey, we need a God that we can see, that we can worship, that looks familiar to us. And hastily, they put together this golden calf for the people to worship. And in contrast in this story, there's this temple that God instructs the people to make, this tabernacle. And it has all these beautiful plans and it takes a long time to make and it takes a lot of thought and effort. And all of the pieces of this tabernacle have deep and profound meanings connected to them to teach people about God and their relationship to God. And so this idea of creating beauty and its practice of it is something that we can thoughtfully engage. And there are a few little things to get you started in that, uh, or, or to give you some ideas of how you could do that, some of those things during Lent, but it doesn't mean you have to be a painter. It doesn't mean you have to do ballet, that you can create beauty in your job crafting an email. You could, you could plant something in your yard. Look at the space that you have to work with in your life and to say, I'm gonna be more intentional about this knowing the awesome creative power that I have been given and to be expectant that you could connect and see God in the appreciation and in the creation of things that you think are beautiful. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, thank you for these, uh, these beautiful people that you have made. Thank you for the wonder and the excitement there can be in seeing something beautiful and creating something beautiful and in having a right relationship with that to share it with others and to see you in it. Give us the grace to do that more, God. Amen.